I wanted the experience of having done it. That was what was important to me. It was never about the money. I'm Summer Cook, a senior in environmental studies at the University of Washington. You're listening to Founded, a podcast that connects you to a community of entrepreneurs, investors, and mentors involved with the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship. Their journey will leave you engaged, educated, elevated, and ready to launch and grow your own idea. Thank you, Summer. I'm Charles Trillingham, coming to you from the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. We have a really fun episode for you here with three guests this time. We start with the entrepreneur behind one of the biggest successes to come out of a Burke Center competition. And if you don't believe me, maybe a $54 million IPO for her company will convince you. I'm talking, of course, about Amber Radcliffe. And a little later, we'll talk with two key parts of the entrepreneurial law clinic here at UW. Uh, the leader of the clinic, Jennifer Fan, and a third-year law student, Jake Gober. These are some of the folks bridging the gap for student startups in a legal sense and really setting them up for long-term success. All right, let's get started. I'm joined now by entrepreneur and strategic advisor, Amber Ratcliffe. Amber won the 2003 UW Business Plan Competition as a part of NanoString Technologies. Today, NanoString is a publicly traded company uh, whose products are based off a novel digital molecular barcoding technology developed in Seattle. That's a mouthful, but as a strategic advisor with a Decipher Group, her company, Amber, will break it down. Thank you for speaking with us, Amber. Thank you for having me. I remember 2003 was a long time ago, but looking back, can you remember what it felt like as a student to be part of the startup experience that was NanoString? Oh my gosh, it was so um, incredibly compelling. It was exciting. It was kind of a little bit of like moth to the flame, you know? Um, gosh, back then, I mean, it was after the dot-com bust, really, and uh, to think about trying to start a company in that environment was kind of daunting. And I'm always one to try to get feedback from other people. And I'd asked a lot of people whether or not this was a good idea. And pretty much everyone said no. And my heart was telling me I really needed to do it. So I went forward. Now, you were faced with, so NanoString had a string of successes and competitions, which you helped revive by working on the business plan. Uh, you were faced with a decision after competition season, though, go get a job or work on this startup. That's a question all entrepreneurs face. Take us through how that felt. Well, I mean, I think that's the first time it really gets real is when you decide you're going to give up real monetary uh, possibilities and you're going to take a risk to follow something that you really believe in. And I did. I had a, I had a job offer in a time when many people didn't. And I really had a hard time with that. And at first I actually accepted the job offer, but then I cried about it all weekend. And on Monday I called and said, I'm so sorry, but I just can't do this. I have to follow my dream. And I decided that I was going to give NanoString a year and see if I could get it funded. Well, let's stay back in those days. Um, so you came to, cause I find it really interesting. You came to UW with a background in biochemistry, environmental chemistry, French, uh, from Western Washington university, um, you even got a job at UW first before coming there to be an MBA. That sounds like a lot for a young person. How did that play out? Well, you know, it's so funny. I mean, in, in, uh, after I graduated, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't actually think I was a very From good Western. scientist. Yes, with my undergraduate degree. And I just um, followed some of my friends down to Seattle and I put a resume into the University of Washington's Human Resources Department. And to my complete surprise, I got a call like 
the next day. And uh, it turns out by sheer chance, uh, and I had no idea who this person was, but Dr. Leroy Hood's lab was hiring. And little did I know uh, that he's like the Bill Gates of biotech. He has invented DNA sequencing and all sorts of other things. And his lab, uh, the project they were working on was the Human Genome Project. And I had studied that in my 10th grade year of high school and that was like enamored. So it was so crazy to be hired into that lab and to start working on that project. Yeah, I mean, that was such a big deal at the time. It was really one of the first revolutionary kind of, this feels like the future is actually happening, mapping the human genome. Right. It was a crazy time. I mean, it was during the dot-com era, and things were building and building and building, and Google was just getting going, and everything seemed like it was like go to the moon. And the lab that I got hired into actually was feeling like a startup because the lab had just been given this huge $3 million grant, and they were on track to hire 25 people, and I was within like the first four. And you know, little did I know I would end up managing much of those people within a couple of months of getting hired there. And I loved everything about managing that. And that's how I kind of realized I should probably go back to business school because I liked the science and I could talk to the scientists, but I could also do things that they really didn't have an interest in and didn't enjoy. I mean, I loved negotiating with the suppliers, you know, and I loved managing people and figuring out how to motivate them and how to get them engaged and, you know, all of those things that business people do. And so I kind of decided at that point that I really wanted to work in a startup and I really wanted to go back to business school. Now, one of the other things you did uh, that we were talking earlier that as a student, you actually pitched to a company that ended up becoming the creation of an internship for you. Talk about that. Well, um, I was trying to figure out what all these different business careers might look like. And one of the companies in town was called Zymo Genetics. And I would drive by them all the time on the freeway. They had these big smokestacks. And I decided I really wanted to understand what they did. And I wanted to understand the different roles there that technical people could play, but in business. And so um, I managed to get an informational interview with the senior vice president of operations. And I went in and I talked to her and I asked her, you know, like, what are your job responsibilities? And I remember her giving me these really great explanations and broad strokes about what she did, but I still felt like, okay, I don't get what you do all day. So I just asked her, okay, so what did you do yesterday? And so she started taking me through her day and it jogged her memory to a conversation she had with a different um, senior vice president of technical operations and realized that there was a need there. And so I ended up meeting with him and pitching an idea for my own internship and I got hired. So you've got these experiences. Momentum is happening for you. As a student in school, your background has played into these, uh, getting a job, you're now an MBA, you've got a great internship, and you see that there are competitions out there worth competing in and worth competing in with an idea. Tell me how that led to NanoString being founded. <laughs> well, before I went back to business school, I was working in a lab where we were developing technologies, and my co-founder was there with me, and he had the idea for doing something that we were already working on much, much better, orders of magnitude better. Um, but it was just that, it was an idea on paper. And so I decided I would go back to business school and get those skills while he could hire somebody to work in the lab and try to vet the technology. And we kept in touch during that period. And honestly, I never thought it would work. I mean, so little of science actually works out. But we were having um, a cocktail hour together at one point, and I was asking him how it was going, and he told me that it was going pretty well. So I offered to write the business plan, and we made a deal. I said, 
I will give you the business plan and I will take it to competition. But if we win, I get all the money. And he said, okay. So May competitions wrapped up. You guys have won the UW business plan competition with this. You start getting press. Yes. Did it feel a bit like, uh oh, the wave is uh, starting to grow here? On one hand, it was exciting. But on the other hand, it felt so premature because we hadn't actually done anything yet. And so I don't know. I had mixed feelings about the whole thing. I felt like, you know, the sky was the limit, but yet it was pretty daunting what we had ahead of us. So June, companies actually founded. Mm-hmm. Uh, roughly a year later, Nanostring raises millions in a Series A. Did it feel like it was happening as fast as it did? No. <laughs> no. Um, you know, when you are coming out of grad school and you just turn down a lucrative job, you know, a year feels like an eternity because I think a year might not feel so long if you know that it's going to get funded. But all during the way, you have these um, moments where it feels like it's all happening and then the deal falls apart at the last minute. We must have had two or three times where we thought we had the deal wrapped up and then it fell apart for reasons that had nothing to do with us. Um, so it did feel like a long time by the time it happened. It didn't feel like it was happening quickly. What, what kept you going? Was there was there an inner monologue happening where you're wondering, or did it just feel like, hey, I, I know that I'm part of something here. I, I need to keep working. We kept getting just enough validation that it kept us engaged. I mean, every time we would have a meeting with a venture capitalist, it seemed like it went so great and it would just keep the hope alive. And I think, you know, we just, um, we found a way to keep going. You know, I, I had given it in my mind a year that I would work, you know, with no pay. And, uh, you know, we, we were right about there when it finally closed. No, it, it got really crazy over the next few years for NanoString. Um, eventually they would get a $70 million Series D. Eventually NanoStream would get a $54 million IPO and become publicly traded. I got to think that back when you were an MBA, you knew these things were a possibility for companies. Did you think it was, was that even in your mind? I mean, I think we all believed that the idea was so big that it was a possibility, but I never did it for that reason. I always knew there were so many things that could go wrong along the way. The reason I did it was because I couldn't imagine living and not knowing what would have happened if I gave it a try. I couldn't live with myself not having given it my all. And I wanted the experience of having done it. That was what was important to me. It was never about the money. Nowadays, you work with new entrepreneurs, you coach new entrepreneurs at UW, you also do small and medium you know, businesses with technology backgrounds. Do you, do you think there's a danger? Because we hear a lot about venture scale now, and there are a lot of headlines made about IPOs now. Do you think there's a danger in new entrepreneurs thinking about the day they're going to exit and the day they're going to go public or the day they're going to raise $70 million versus maybe just focusing on a, on a business that could be successful at a smaller scale? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't feel like the crazy heyday of like the dot-com bust anymore. But I think a lot of people realize that they have to bootstrap further and show more proof of principle. I mean, it's gotten easier to prototype things. You know, back when we were raising money, it took $8 million just to build the first prototype to prove that it could work because the systems that we were building and then ultimately sold were like 
$250,000 systems. You know, they were really big, giant data equipment. And so um, what we did was not a software company. Like this was real tangible goods that took a long time to develop. Um, so I don't know. I think I see some realism in the the people that I work with. I mean, I think there always has to be a level of optimism with entrepreneurs. Otherwise, it's hard to get up in the morning because there's so many mountains you have to climb. But there always has to be some glimmer of hope. But everybody that I know that is successful in the long run is not doing it for the money. They are doing it for the passion of this idea that they absolutely believe in and that they literally, they just can't let it go. Now, you also gained a tremendous amount of experience over your time with NanoString, of course. Um, you know, you still have equity in the company, but later what you had learned and what you had worked on played a role into the next phase of your life and your career. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's funny how things, you know, in your life come back to touch you again later. So when I was pitching NanoString, um, I went and I was invited by uh, Ralph Derrickson at Vulcan Ventures to come down and pitch there as part of a, kind of a development program uh, through the through the entrepreneurship program at UW. And they gave us feedback on our pitches, and then ultimately we were asked back to pitch for real. Um, and you know, years later. I was contacted by him, and he was at a new company called Karina, which was looking at the possibility of doing online doctor visits, like on-demand urgent care. And he wanted me to write a business plan for that. And so I went to work on that, and I thought it was a tremendous opportunity. And so I ended up joining him and um, built it. And now uh, in 2014, we launched the very first version of that direct to the public through a hospital partner. And this year, there's more than 35 million people that have that available to them. 24 seven hour, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You can get online, you can request a doctor, and they will call you back in about 12 minutes. Wow, what an incredible experience. So you also have the Decipher Group, a company that you founded. Um, again, it works with small businesses, primarily with technical founders. Is it any less exciting for those kind of entrepreneurs, you know, to be working in a smaller space? Oh my gosh, I think they're all so excited. I mean, one of the things that I think that I'm able to provide to them is, you know, having lived through it a few times myself now, most of these people are technical founders. This is their first company that they're trying to grow as uh, the leader. And I'm able to give them like perspective, you know, like how have other companies gone about figuring out their go-to-market strategy? How have other companies figured out how to, you know, price their products or package their products or... Um, how have they engaged with their customers and developed beta test sites? And how have they successfully navigated launching internationally? And so those are things that I'm able to kind of be the coach and sometimes therapist, you know, for CEOs because it's a tough place to be. It's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of ups and downs. And, um, you know, as my friend Ralph Derrickson calls it, there's the terror elation curve that you're always riding and it's really nice to have somebody else that knows what you're talking about to, to bounce ideas off of and to commiserate with from time to time. There's something interesting that you were just getting at, and that's you've been praised for your ability to talk about the technical aspects of what NanoString did while also keeping in mind the needs of the end users. You know, it, what is the trick that you share or, or do you find that there's a disconnect between these new entrepreneurs that understand the jargon but they're not able to communicate that to the customers and the users who also need to understand it. Well, I think that the underpinning of everything that you're talking about there is 
making sure that a product is not being developed in a vacuum. You have got to get out and talk to your customers early before you develop it. Along the way, they're your partner, they're your guideposts, you know, they are the ones that tell you whether or not what you're selling is what they want to buy. And so I think a lot of technical founders um, think they're their own best customer. And to remind them and to teach them the proper way to go out and gauge the market and to lead them through um, how do you have a guided discussion with several customer possibilities before you actually develop your product to make sure that you're not making a one-off custom thing that only one person wants to buy. And that's, I think, an area that nobody's been trained in when you come from a technical background. And it's just absolutely critical for design thinking. So um, hopefully if you do that process right, you've developed customers that will be your beta testers and you can just iterate on that design thinking. It's like test your hypothesis, show it to them, get their feedback, get them to use it and continue to innovate on your product. And that's just not something I think that uh, is, is taught. You're able to communicate that so clearly again, but part of the reason you were able to get to that place was because you had this technical education and then you went and did some business education and then you joined or helped found a startup where again primary um some of the primary technology is being developed on the technical side which you understood mm -hmm. but you were bringing the business aspect to that how important is that when it comes to a team and it comes to a makeup well you know <laughs> Again, my friend Ralph Dirksen calls this type of person that I am a tweener. I'm, I can actually go between the technical people and the business people, and I can speak language, you know, the language of each and help them communicate better. And you don't have to be a tweener to be an entrepreneur, but you have to have someone on your team who is. And I think if you can identify who that is or find someone like me who can do that for you, then you're going to be much more successful along the way. Getting the coverage that, you know, you guys got NanoString and then yourself, you know, you garnered a ton of accolades. Uh, you were named the Seattle Business Monthly's Top 25 Entrepreneurs, Puget Sound Business Journal's 40 Under 40. Is that strange to hear? Was that, has that, was that a distraction when those things happened? Oh, my God. I feel so incredibly awkward. You know, like, I always just, yeah, it curls my toes. I I. I feel just so, um, I guess, honored and surprised to be included in that group because there's so many people that have done amazing things. And I think, you know, one of the things that they don't give you room to talk about enough when you get those awards is the team that you are part of. I mean, I got to work with amazing people at all of these places, and honestly, it takes a village. So. You know, whether or not they were in my company or all the people that had the 110 coffees with me along the way to tell me who I need to talk to next or help me figure out how to solve a problem, I couldn't have done it alone. So, um, you know, I just am filled with gratitude and um, deep embarrassment over all of that. <laughs> now, I want to go back to the Decipher group. And I know you explained it a little bit, but just for those who don't know, your title is a strategic advisor. You consider yourself a coach why should companies be looking for these kind of individuals that are out there, individuals like you who, who can give that strategic advice? Well, you know, having been one of those entrepreneurs, when you're in it, you're in the weeds so deep, sometimes it's very hard to rise up above it and see the big picture. And coming from the outside, I'm able to come in and, like, listen to your stream of consciousness and then really understand 
and point out to you like the larger patterns that I see at play. And it can be tremendously helpful for teams. You know, I'll come in and I'll facilitate executive offsites where they're trying to do planning or understand where they should go next or how to allocate resources or where to spend their time. You know, I think a lot of technical founders tend to want to dive back into the technical aspects when they start to solve problems. And what it's difficult for some people to learn is that, you know, once you're in that CEO role, like your job is externally facing most of the time. I mean, you need to have people inside that are developing things, but really you should be out finding your next business opportunity and cultivating new customers and understanding where your product's going and what's going on in the outside marketplace. And, um, and so for me to help them see um, having seen, you know, so many companies go through these issues, I, I can identify with where they're at in this process and help them kind of see what they should be doing next. So, you know, for me, a strategic advisor is someone that helps um, people clarify what is their vision and then helps them figure out how to quickly get there. I, I got to imagine that with new entrepreneurs, or you work with a lot of students at UW and a lot of students who are in the surrounding region as well who come to UW competitions, uh, their eyes must get so wide when you break down some of what you just shared? I mean, what I see in their eyes usually is like an aha moment and they finally see what the next step is and they, they like it reopens, it, it, um, it takes away some of the feeling of being overwhelmed because there's a clear next step. And it's like, you don't worry about the rest until you complete this next step. And so helping them break down what seems like such a daunting number of different places they could be spending their time down to like, nope, this is the most important one. Don't think about anything else right now until you complete this next step makes it achievable. And I think that's what someone coming in from the outside can really help you do. Huge thanks to Amber Radcliffe. You know, she's on the wall outside the Burke Center office as one of the student success stories that we like to celebrate. She gave us a bunch of time after traveling in from New York. Amber, we are in your debt. Okay, our next two guests are great. They come to us from the Entrepreneurial Law Clinic at the UW School of Law. This place is amazing. They provide low or no cost legal services to entrepreneurs and nonprofits while also giving law students a huge opportunity to get some real world experience. I think you're really gonna enjoy this one. I'm joined now by Jennifer Fan, the director of the Entrepreneurial Law Clinic at UW and former associate at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati as well as third-year law student Jake Gober, who is returning to the Entrepreneurial Law Clinic for another year as an advanced clinic student. Thank you both for joining. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Uh, Jake, I want to start with you. Uh, in addition to representing student entrepreneurs, you're also working on a master's degree? Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm currently pursuing my master's in pharmaceutical bioengineering. Um, I come from a background working in the biotech industry, so... Um, it was kind of a natural extension for me when I decided to go to law school. I knew I wanted to stay involved in the, the life sciences community. So um, I am going into patent law ultimately, and in patent law, it's important to you know have a very good understanding of the, the science and technology you're working with. So it was kind of a natural extension for me to also get that master's degree. Yeah, medical and biotech certainly lives in the patent space, maybe more than any other, huh? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's interesting to me. I think in patent law, you generally see a breakdown. You have a lot of life science stuff, and then you have a lot of like high technology clients. And um, I think as we advance, we're getting seeing more and more often those two worlds are colliding. And high tech is having a big impact on you know life sciences and biotech and pharmaceuticals. And um, that's kind of I think ultimately where I'd love to end up working with. 
Uh, do you see a similarity between what you're trying to accomplish as a student and what entrepreneurs um, are trying to accomplish that you work with? I mean, yes and no. Yes, because I'm very busy, but everyone's very busy. Um, everyone has to master time management skills to um, succeed, whether you're a student or an entrepreneur or both. Um, so yeah, I think in that sense, yes, but I think both my degrees are ac academic at this point. Um, I'm not working yet, so that clearly is a, a big difference than what student entrepreneurs are going through. Now, Jennifer, Jake is just one of your students uh, on the team this year. Talk about what you expect from them and where you hope they grow. So one of the things that I hope that my students learn um, from the clinic is how to interact with clients in a way that makes the law accessible to the client. Because I think people find the law intimidating sometimes, and it's our job to portray it in a way that is easily understandable. Um, and I also turned to Jake here to kind of ask him like what he was hoping to get out of the clinic and if he, you know, if I achieved that goal as a faculty member. You did, for the record. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, one of the biggest keys for me choosing to participate in the clinic the first time or last year and then coming back this year was just to be able to handle myself around clients and learn how to you know, give legal advice in the moment and learn how to handle maybe business questions in the moment that I, my education certainly hasn't um, prepared me for. And the clinic certainly has done that and given me the opportunity and uh it's in an, done in an environment where I know I'll be able to succeed, so that's also very helpful. Like You provide all the tools that the students need to learn to succeed when they are in a client meeting giving, um, giving specific legal advice. So we're going to get into more a little bit more of how they interact specifically with entrepreneurs here in a minute, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your educational background. Uh, you have degrees from Stanford and Penn. Where did your interest in entrepreneurship begin? Uh, so I grew up in Hawaii, and my parents owned a small business. And so from a very young age, I was very involved in, you know, either helping out in my parents' warehouse, seeing how, like, the financial aspects of the business worked. Um, and as I got older, seeing the contracts that they would negotiate. So to, uh, to me, all of that was, like, really fascinating um, and just helping someone kind of achieve their dreams in terms of owning a small business was always very appealing to me. So that's how I got into entrepreneurship. How did you make your way to UW? So my husband got a job at Amazon, like a lot of people nowadays. Um, and so that's how I ended up here. And I was very fortunate um, to actually work at Wilson Sonsini, where I'd been previously um, in their Seattle office. And uh, then I decided I wanted a change and decided to go into academia. Unfortunately, there was an opening here and I took it. Now, I'd love to hear from both of you on this question, but we'll start with you, Jennifer. Um, I'm curious if either of you ever get caught up in the excitement of a new startup's idea. Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the excitement is very palpable. And actually, the students get a little nervous, too, because, like, oh, my goodness, like, I don't know much about this technology. You know, um, how should I find out more about it? And uh, what we talk about a lot in class is, you know, what's really exciting, especially when we work with student entrepreneurs, is, um, you know, they're working on the hottest new areas of um, entrepreneurship, like blockchain technology or something in digital health. Um, and yeah, it, it gets everyone revved up and just kind of very excited to do their very, very best. How about you, Jake? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest appeals of working with um, startups as clients is you get to, you know, witness and be a part of that excitement. At the same time, though, I think it's an attorney's role and 
in the law clinic, it's my role as a student. Sometimes you have to almost put the brakes on them because founders and entrepreneurs will be so excited, you know, get their product to the market and get launched that it's important that even when you're caught up in that excitement, which is good to be caught up in, you still got to remember your role um, and that you're there to provide legal advice. So one of the things that we like to make sure our clients understand is that we're there to collaborate with them. Oftentimes, clients feel that perhaps attorneys are a roadblock to the goals that they want to achieve. So one of the things we want to make sure they understand from the get-go is that we're there to help them and help them to achieve their goals um, in terms of the business that they want to start up. Now, Jake, I'm, I'm interested. Do you have entrepreneurship in your background? Jennifer told us, you know, there's the small business aspect for her. Uh, was there something for you? Um, actually, similar to Jennifer, both my parents were small business owners. Um, more than that, though, I also... I was born and raised here in Seattle. Um, obviously, we have Seattle. It's is a very entrepreneurial city. Um, we're in Microsoft and Amazon's backyard. You see where a startup can grow to. I mean, in the in the biggest sense of it. Um, so you can just see the impact that a startup can have on both an individual's life and then also a city and a community. Uh, Jen, uh, back to you. So, how do you go about? How does the entrepreneurial law clinic go about choosing who to represent? So we represent four different types of entrepreneurs, micro-enterprises, high-tech ventures, nonprofits, and social ventures, and we also collaborate with Commotion, which is the innovation hub of the university. Um, so we like to get a variety of different client types for our students to experience. Um, and, and so we try to roughly divide up uh, our client makeup in that fashion um, using those four different kind of client bases as a starting point. And we have an online application process. Uh, so we take a look at the um, income levels of our clients uh, as a first matter because we primarily help low-income entrepreneurs. I wanted to ask... Um did your experience with Wilson Sonsini help inform you with how to work with startups? Definitely. So I represented startups, uh, both both companies starting up and also companies at the later stages as well. And one of the things I loved about my practice um, as a corporate securities attorney was the opportunity to work with these, you know, up-and-coming startups that were really going to change the trajectory of how a particular industry was going to go. Um, so it gave me a very solid background and worked with some great people there. So I'm very grateful that I had that experience. Jake, uh, when you're working with fellow students, is it easier for them to receive your legal advice because you're a student as well? Or do you think they not maybe don't see it that way? I don't think they necessarily see it that way. I do think that you get a bunch of attorneys in a room and a first-time entrepreneur will be intimidated. So I certainly think me being a fellow student um, I'm not as intimidating as a lot of attorneys are. Not that attorneys are intimidating. It's just the thought of maybe this is the first time they've ever sat down across the table from a lawyer. Maybe this is the first time they've you know, been in a, a fancy high-rise downtown in a conference room. Does it feel like maybe that experience is a little bit more casual? It's not the, what you see in a, you know, pop culture where it's the eight dark suits all sitting at one end of the table and then the client sitting at the opposite end and the table's very, very long and very, very scary and they're all saying the same thing. For sure. I think one of the first things that uh, we learn in the clinic is make sure you uh, don't all sit on the opposite side of the table from your client, you know, integrate them into the into the circle and make them feel very comfortable. Well, speaking of comfort, can you share what an initial conversation is like with a new startup founder from your perspective? Sure. Yeah, I think the, the biggest goal is just getting them to talk about their idea, their business, their goals. 
Um, once they start talking about it, which is usually really easy to get a founder to talk about their idea because they're clearly very excited about it. That's why they sought the help of the clinic. But it's pretty easy to see where you can provide value for them um, once they start talking about their idea. And certainly there's follow-up questions both from a patent or IP pr- perspective and then from a corporate perspective that um, us students will ask. And then I'm very interested, in, and again, Jennifer, you can you can jump in here too, but this is really for Jake to start. From the Entrepreneurial Law Clinic's perspective, what's the last interaction you typically have with your clients? So it, it definitely depends on the context. Um, initially, we'll usually do like a full business audit of someone's idea. So this can be talking about, you know, whether their technology could form the basis of patent, whether, whether it's patentable, and also from a corporate or transactional side, you know, entity formation and equity allocation and stuff like that. Then, depending on the needs of the client and the resources of the clinic, we oftentimes will help them in the next step, whether that is actually like incorporating, for example, or drafting a patent application for them. So we don't we don't want to leave the, the client just hanging cold. Like, even if we aren't able to represent them further, we can point them in the right direction. Jen, he's good. I could see why you had him back. Yeah, definitely. So I think I don't really have much to add. And you can also see why I have him as an advanced clinic student. Jake is doing a fantastic job. Um, But this, you know, he's just one example of the type of students that I get to work with. Jen, is there a type of startup, um, healthcare, clean tech, consumer products, an app? Is easiest to advise uh, from a legal perspective? I don't know if I would say there's an easiest client. I suppose that, you know, ones that sort of start off as, you know, just one entrepreneur that has a business idea. Like we had an entrepreneur who wanted to start a, a business having to do with playing cards. So that one wasn't as difficult to analyze as, let's say, a client that we had who developed a robotic hand that would translate American Sign Language into the spoken word. So it, it depends, um, and it also depends about on the regulations sort of surrounding that particular industry or, you know, if the law is playing catch-up in that particular business segment. So, for example, in the case of augmented reality or virtual reality or blockchain technology, just to cite a few examples, you know, the law is still catching up in a lot of respects. Um, and so there's a lot of novel legal issues that could come up that the students have to grapple with. Is there a particular piece of legal advice that you can't share enough of? I think that clients have to learn like when they have to come to an attorney, and it's usually sooner rather than later. A lot of times people want to save on costs, but what they don't realize is that by saving on their legal costs early on, they could be in for larger problems later on. Using LegalZoom, um, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I would recommend going to an attorney, figuring out what steps you need to take in order to lay the proper foundation to make your business a success. It, it kind of sounds like when you visit a doctor and they say, you know, you can Google your symptoms or go to WebMD, but you probably should have just came and made a made a doctor's appointment with me when you say, Jake. Yeah, um, I was going to say exactly what Jennifer said when you uh, asked that question. And I think you can save a lot of money down the road by seeking legal advice early on. And there's certainly avenues to minimize costs. For example, the clinic being a great resource. Um, but there's other resources and there's other there's fee arrangements you can make with law firms where you don't have to pay up front. So there's certainly ways to make it happen on limited resources. Is there is there a piece of legal advice that, that surprises you that more new entrepreneurs aren't aware of? In patent law, I think there are certain tricks to the trade um, that you have to you have to have a nuanced understanding of the law to um, really comprehend that first-time entrepreneurs, even seasoned entrepreneurs, won't know um, that you really can't you can't solve these issues on your own without 
an attorney who's well versed in the law. So you, I mean, you have bio, biotech in your background. Is that is is giving legal advice in that area the most exciting for you, or is there is there another piece of legal advice that maybe when you share it with that entrepreneur and you see their eyes light up or get wide because they're they're realizing something that that just kind of gives you a buzz? Yeah. So my background is in biotech, so I, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for life science work. But really, I mean, I'm even though I'm in law school, I'm still kind of a, a tech geek. Like I love technology. I love the sciences. Like I will be working with tech companies and science companies. Like I'm not going to be, you know, in a courtroom doing litigation. I'm going to be working with inventors. Um, so one of the ex- most exciting things for me is talking about inventions and the cutting edge of technology and then being able to provide some value for the people who are smart enough to come up with these great ideas um, and give them, you know, help them on their path to making and revolutionizing industries. That that sounds like something from someone who's definitely Seattle born and raised. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the other thing I wanted to add was that um, in the clinic, what we also try to do uh, to give our students a diversity of experience is to also work with a diverse set of clients. So we have entrepreneurs that have ranged from age 15 to age 83. You know, they come from all sorts of walks of life and have all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, Over half of our clients have been women and minorities. A goal of mine, a personal goal actually, is to diversify the type of entrepreneurs that we're representing because there's a lot of entrepreneurs that historically have been come from historically underrepresented groups. And I know that at the UW generally, I know the Burke Center does this, you know, UW Law certainly does this, but, you know, trying to give more access to more people um, that, that need our help. Yeah, reducing those barriers is, a, is definitely a critical need. And it's, and it's not as easy as it probably sounds. No, that's definitely true. And I think just making our students aware of, you know, maybe how they're going to deal with someone who's a veteran versus someone who is a single mom versus someone who's a teenager, you're going to sort of speak differently to the different types of client types you have, like some more informally, some more formally. Um, so it really kind of depends. But uh, a lot of what we're trying to do in the clinic is to give our students, you know, the real world experience um, that they can then take with them when they go out into practice uh, so that they can be comfortable from day one in terms of interacting with clients, because that's not a skill that you develop overnight. That's a skill that comes with time. Well, I think you're going to enjoy this. But the, the last question I have for you, Jennifer, tell me why at the end of the day, every entrepreneur should be happy to have a lawyer. I believe that every entrepreneur should be happy to have a lawyer because we're there to, again, be their partner, um, to help them achieve the, you know, achieve their goals in a way uh, that they don't have to worry about the legal stuff, right? Legal stuff shouldn't become an issue. um, And what we're trying to do is help them to avoid some of the pitfalls that they would otherwise um, have to face if they didn't have a lawyer from day one. Thank you again to Jennifer Fan and Jake Gober from the Entrepreneurial Law Clinic at the UW School of Law. Also, again, a huge thanks to Amber Ratcliffe. You've been listening to Founded. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. And we'll be coming at you again with another episode here soon. I'm Charles Trillian.